Morning, everyone. Great to uh, be with you in worship this morning. My name is Jeff. I'm a pastor at Boulevard Presbyterian Church in the Austin Oak Park area. And uh, if you don't know, Boulevard is a church plant of Covenant. Uh, we uh, started two years ago. And um, yeah, and uh, I'm delighted to be here back at Covenant. This was my, my home church for 15 years. And over the years that I was here, God spoke to me in many really important ways in my life and poured out a lot of love and grace uh, to me through this church, so it's always a delight to be back with you. Um, Let me just give you a a brief update about Boulevard. So if you don't know, um, Covenant has this vision for starting new churches in the city of Chicago that, um, yeah, that identify with particular locations and dig deep into those locations, digging deep and identifying with them and with loving them. So Lincoln Square Presbyterian was the first church plant of Covenant, obviously in the Lincoln Square neighborhood on the north side. And Boulevard and Austin Oak Park is the second. Um, and so just a, a couple of updates uh, for you from the past couple years. So there's much to give God thanks for. Um, what, I, what I mostly think of when I, I thank God uh, for what he's been doing at Boulevard is the people uh, that he's brought to us. And to see him bring people who are hungering and thirsting to hear good news um, has been really sweet. Um, to see him bring uh, through people gifts that we need and often just like right at the right time, the right gift, whether it's like being able to play an instrument or sing or gifts of really being able to care for people and walk with them in difficult situations or gifts of organization. That's been really sweet and God has just shown us over and over again that he's rich in love toward the church um, through his people. And maybe I could leave you with a a couple things to pray for too. So pray, I think, foremostly that we as a church would constantly find our hope in Jesus, uh, that we wouldn't give that up. Um, As we pray for you two and for all of our brothers and sisters in the faith around the world, pray we hold fast to the hope of Christ and are renewed in it. And secondly, uh, pray that God continue to open up doors uh, for reaching out to our neighbors with the good news of Jesus, um, particularly uh, to those who are, are hungering, to hear that good news, that he would bring those people into our paths, and also that he would help us in those relationships to to cross uh, divides of socioeconomics and race as well, which really mar and hurt our particular geography, as it does throughout our city. So um, thanks for that. Thanks uh, for your prayers. Thanks for financial support. Also, Covenant gives a significant uh, chunk of its budget to our church, and we're grateful for that. Um, Thanks for visiting us. Uh, Through the past couple years, a number of people from Covenant have come. Uh, Your own pastor, Aaron, who's on sabbatical, has shown up three times uh, this summer. So it's always a delight to have you and would welcome you uh, anytime, any Sunday to worship with us. So uh, you guys are uh, working through the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5 through 7. And today we're coming to uh, that part in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about how to relate to possessions. So it's found in Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Uh, It's printed in your order of worship if you want to follow along there, or you can just listen as I read from Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me uh, pray for all of us before we dig in deeper together in this passage. Oh, Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you this morning as people in need of hope. In the news is um, mass shootings in El Paso and in Dayton. Also, uh, the news of uh, in, in our own city, seven wounded last night in a shooting uh, right next to a playground in Douglas Park on the west side. And God, these, um, these three things I've just named just begin to scratch the surface of all the ways that our creation is groaning and that we are groaning as part of our fallen world. So come, Lord Jesus, speak your word of life to us and point us to yourself. Give us hope, give us rest, give us good work to do in your name. We pray this through you. Amen. <clears throat> A few months ago, I took my then three-year-old son, Zachary, to the dentist, and that was for the second time that he went to the dentist. Um, what I should tell you is that the first time he went to the dentist, he refused to open his mouth. It was like teeth clenched shut. The dentist probed a bit to try to get him to open it, promised all sorts of stuff, nothing. He wouldn't open it. And the dentist eventually gave up, and I can sympathize uh, with Zachary. I think opening up uh, your mouth this very vulnerable place for a total stranger to insert instrumentation is an unnatural thing. Can we all agree? But uh, the second time, uh, we tried a different dentist. And uh, the amazing thing is that when the dentist asked Zachary to open his mouth, he did so widely and proudly. So why the difference? Well, I think it comes down to one thing. His sister, who had been to that new dentist just before him, explained to him that with the new dentist, at the end of the appointment, you get to pick a toy out of a treasure chest. And indeed, when uh, we showed up at this new dentist office, uh, they, on their, on their guiding us back to the, um, to the examination room, marched us right by this treasure chest full of toys. It's as if the thing were just crying out, if you are a, if you are a compliant boy and girl, this will all be yours. Well, the motivation uh, worked on Zachary. The promise of treasure uh, enabled him to face what he otherwise never would have. Now, in our passage, Jesus is talking about a kind of treasure-oriented motivation. Now, you might, you might see that happening and think, ah, Jesus, you know, I would expect better of you. Um, if we particularly have a more... Uh, enlightenment, prudish view of Christianity, we might come at this and say, no, 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 Jesus, you should have raised the bar higher. You see, it's really just do the good without any regard for consequence or treasure or reward because the good in and of itself is enough. But what's interesting is that Jesus, and important, is that Jesus does not go that route. He assumes that we humans are treasure hunters by constitution. He assumes that we are designed to anticipate and to, to gladly enjoy good things. 
And so for Jesus, the question is not if we will seek treasure, because we will. The question is where we will seek the treasure. So he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now when Jesus talks about treasures on earth, I think it can basically mean anything that we would value in this world. But in the last word of the passage, and that holds true both in English and in the original language, Jesus takes aim at one specific category. It's uh, expressed in the, the Semitic origin word mammon, which we still use in English thanks to this very passage. Mammon uh, means originally possessions or property. In our translation, it's rendered money. Mammon is, in other words, our stuff. It is our stuff in this world. And so this begs the question, why would we naturally want to treasure stuff? I think a first reason for that is that the first reason we want to treasure stuff is for security. If you have money in the bank, you're inclined to probably worry less about what you're going to eat tomorrow. Because you think, if I run out of food today, I can take some of my money and go to the grocery store and, and get more tomorrow. You worry probably less about where you will stay tomorrow. Even, even if my house burns to the ground, I mean, most of us hopefully have invested money into insurance, which will, you know, hopefully take care of us and enable us to move on. Or we, we have enough saved that we can find somewhere to live. If medical problems come, money can seemingly get us access to better health care. Money offers this cushion, this pivot, this kind of uh, ability to fortress ourselves against troubles. I think having stuff gives us a sense of control and in an uncontrollable world, intangible control that we can count and see and lay our hands on. So that, that's one reason why I think we would be tempted to treasure stuff, because it gives us a sense of security. But I don't think that's the only reason we treasure stuff. A second reason I think we treasure stuff is for approval. You see, when we lay up stuff for ourselves, it's so often not just for bare utility. I think it's also because we want to be able to see ourselves as the kind of person that has that stuff. And perhaps because we want other people to see us as the kind of person that has that stuff. So for example, um, you procure a means of transportation. Let's say a car. It could equally apply if it's a bike or whatever it might be. You get, you get a new car for yourself and you, you certainly think in choosing the car what will get me from point A to point B. But I think for most of us choosing a car, we, we think about all sorts of other things too. How does this car represent me to the watching world? Does it say that I am successful? Does it say that I am powerful? Or that I'm fun? Does this car, uh, as my um, avatar, convey that I am economical? Or for some of us that I have a low carbon footprint? Or maybe for some of us that we have a high carbon footprint? You see, we often turn to stuff 
not just for its utility and not just for its security, but for a sense that would, whatever it would convey to the world would somehow trigger an approval that we yearn for. And it doesn't just go with cars. We invest that kind of treasuring also in the phone that we choose to make calls on, in our clothes that we choose to wear, in uh, the alma mater that we can drop at a cocktail party, in the job that we say we have, in the restaurants that we eat at, in the coffee we buy and maybe roast ourselves, in the address we reside at. There is no limit as, as far as the stuff of the world reaches, so far is our ability to find in that a treasury of approval. You can hear it in the language that we use to talk about possessions. So as an example, a number of years ago, I uh, met with the financial planner. Uh, this was for my, my first time meeting with the financial planner. And his out-of-the-gate question for me was, what is your worth? When I first heard the question, I stumbled a bit. I was like, oh, uh, wasn't expecting that. Um, that's very deep, existential, um, you know, image bearer of God. How, how can I talk about that to this guy? And then, you know, within a second, it clicked, oh, wait, what he wants is a numeric value, a monetary value of my assets. What this guy wants is a number. And that number equals my worth. Now, I think it's important to say, as we're, we're hearing Jesus push against this, that Jesus is not saying that we should have nothing to do with the stuff of the world, right? First of all, that would be impossible. There's a really funny uh, Portlandia skit about it uh, that you can find on YouTube. The, Jesus is not saying, you know, flush your money down the toilet, burn the house down, uh, throw away your cell phone, sell everything you have. He, he's not saying that. And in fact, if you, if you read on at all the things Jesus says following him involves, it actually, very, to follow Jesus, it very much involves and necessitates having stuff in our lives and relating rightly to that stuff in our lives. But what Jesus is saying is, with the stuff that is in your life, do not lay these up as treasures. Do not treasure the stuff in your life as if your life consisted of it, as Jesus says in Luke 12. Do not think that these are, the, these are your makers, that these are your gods, that these are the ones who delivered you from Egypt. Now, you're going to be inclined to think, to think that, but don't because it's deceptive. And how Jesus gets at the deception is he tells a couple of truths about the reality of the stuff of our world. The first truth about things we might treasure on earth is that these things are not secure. Jesus names three threats, moth, rust, and thieves. Moth is the threat of nature. Rust the threat of time, and thieves, the threat of others. And what he's saying is you, you may have your fortress, you may have a castle, but know that that thing can fall. You may have a, a portfolio, a financial portfolio that would be the, the envy of everybody and, and promise all sorts of security, but the market can crash. The dollar can, can lose its value. 
You may have your dream position at work, but you can lose it. You might have access to the best health care in the world, but it might not be enough. Because in the kingdoms of this world, moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. So the first truth about the stuff of this world is that it is not secure. The second true thing Jesus says about the treasures on earth is that they master you. He gets at it in the last verse where he basically says, when you treasure hunt, whatever it is that you are hunting for is what you are serving. You will make great sacrifices for whatever that thing is. And when it comes to the treasures of this world, these things are not good masters to serve. An illustration I really like uh, comes from Schopenhauer. He says about wealth, he says, wealth is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become. And that is so true with money. Surveys have asked people who ask 30, 000, who bring in an annual income of 30,000, how much do you, do you think you need to be, to be comfortable, to do well, to flourish in this life? And they'll say 50. You ask people who earn 50, how much do you think you need to do well? And they don't say 50. <laughs> they bump it up to 75. You ask those who earn 75, they say 110. You ask those who say a million, and they'll say two or three million. It proportionally, the, the amount more that we think we need proportionally increases with the amount of stuff that we have. It is like salt water. It is not made to slake our thirst. And so when we treasure it, when we turn to it and say, you are the thing that will get me through, you are worth the sacrifice, you will slake my thirst and feed my hungry hunger, it'll leave us addicted and actually insecure and unapproved. So Jesus is saying, in light of all that, choose your treasure wisely. He assumes we all have things in our lives, that thing that we deep inside treasure, that thing that we look at and we say, if we have that, it'll all be worth it. If we have family, it'll all be worth it. If we have possessions, if we have that profession, if we have money, if we have a claim, if we have health, it'll all be worth it. But what Jesus does is he directs our treasure hunting toward that one place where neither moth nor rust nor thieves can take it. Lay up for yourselves treasure, but where in heaven? In other words, make that thing that you most treasure, that thing that you most want, that thing that you most turn to to slake your thirst, the thing to which you say, if I had that, it will all have been worth it. Make it God himself. Why? Because unlike anything else that you will find in the creative order, God is one worthy of our deepest affections and treasuring. He is secondly 100% secure And he thirdly is a good master to serve. If you see how Jesus talks about the God he's inviting us to serve, 
and find our treasure in in this passage. If you look before and after this passage, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you see that. He is, he is who? He is our Father in heaven. He is the one who knows what we need before we even ask him. He's the one who, who cares for us more than the, the lilies of the field or the birds of the air. He's the one who, who takes particular interest in us and knows us in and out and knows all that threatens and assails us and makes sure to take care of us in all the ways that we need that. He is the Father in heaven who loves us. He is good treasure. Now this summer, I'm uh, reading through a biography of Jane Addams. If, uh, if you don't know Jane Addams, she is the, was the first American woman uh, to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and she started the first settlement house in the U.S. Uh, it was actually here in Chicago, right on Halstead Street, uh, really close to where the UIC, actually on the UIC campus uh, right now. Um, at that time, it was, it was a neighborhood of, of immigrants in Chicago. So there is, there's one place in Adam's memoirs, uh, which she wrote as an adult, where she recalled that as a little girl, she had this worry that her father would not want her walking next to her, that her father would be ashamed. And her father was this uh, successful businessman. He was a state senator in Illinois. This was in a, a small town close to Rockford. Um, that her father, the, the senator, you know, Senator Adams would be ashamed to have Jane walking next to him on the way to Sunday school. I guess uh, Sunday mornings was maybe the time when they would get out and walk and the whole town would be at, out. And she worried that her father would be ashamed to be seen walking next to her. Why? Because of her crooked back. Now, the biographer thinks Jane's back was probably not that crooked. But in Jane's mind, she was the girl with the crooked back. I think... Most of us probably have something like that. We see ourselves as that person, you know, whether or not it's true to characterize us. Well, Jane saw herself as the girl with the crooked back. Now, at this point in her life, uh, her mom had already died, and so she describes that on the way to Sunday school, uh, she would walk with her uncle. And one Sunday morning, she was walking uh, to Sunday school with her uncle instead of her father, when to her great surprise, her uncle, who was ahead of him, stopped he doffed his tall silk black hat, as she describes it, and bowed formally to Jane, waiting for her to join him on the sidewalk. And that at that moment, she knew she could proudly walk alongside her father for everyone to see. That Jane Adams was no longer that girl with the crooked back. She was Senator Adams' daughter, in whom she was proud. That she was the, the eye, the, the, the apple of his eye. And that he delighted for her to be right by his side for everyone to see. That that's who she was. And what I think is so fascinating about this whole account in Jane Addams' memoirs is that she is writing this as an adult. That Jane Addams, the adult, the Nobel laureate, the strong, courageous boss of a woman who with great courage and conviction, could basically talk to any man and tell them exactly what she thought, that this powerful woman kept thinking of that one moment when she knew that her father loved her, when she knew that her father was not ashamed of her, when she knew who she was, her father's daughter. Now, friends, we are all made for that kind of love from our parents. 
And all of our parents fail us, all of our biological parents fail us in one way or another in this world. But our biological parents are always meant at their best to be pointers to the fact that we are ultimately made to receive that kind of love from a heavenly father. To receive that kind of security from a heavenly father. To receive that kind of approval from a heavenly father. And in light of that, in light of everything that scripture tells us about our heavenly father, to know him and then to look at the stuff of the world and say, you give me my security, you give me my approval, I'm making you my treasure, it seems pretty light. So how do we cultivate that awareness of how worthy God is to be our treasure, of what a good treasure he is? It's obviously a, a hard thing to do, right? Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't talk about it. It's, it's a deceptive thing that we, we really, in the moment, think that, that acquiring this earthly stuff is going to make it for us. So how do we get beyond that? Well, I think the answer is actually found in the two verses we haven't looked at yet in this passage, verses 22 and 23. You read before it, and it's about the possessions that we have in the world. You read after it, and it's back to possessions. And you read those two verses, and it's like, what are these two aphoristic, seemingly unrelated verses doing just inserted right in here? Well, I think Jesus brings up this, this aphoristic teaching at this moment to talk about how it is that we, we ascertain what he is talking about and move into it. He describes that the eye is the lamp of the body. And what he means by that is that if the eye works and you are in a place with light and in our world there, there's darkness but there is also light all around, if your eye works, you will be able to take in that light and find your way through, through the world um, with it. You'll be able to see the world for what it is. But he says, if the eye doesn't work, even though there may be light all around, you'll live in the darkness and not be able to see reality for what it is, not be able to find your way through it. And his point is, with your eyes, train them to see the light of the heavenly kingdom. Learn to see reality by its light. Learn to cultivate interest in admiration in your heavenly father. Whenever you catch yourself being, being tempted to find treasury and stuff of this world, think, what is it that I, I want that thing to give me? And then consider, what does your heavenly father offer you? And know that that thing in itself is just a, a pointer to a much greater uh, treasury, a much greater security, and a much greater source of approval. And a couple of very practical ways that Jesus talks about how we can train our eyes on God, particularly with respect to money, are these. One, and I'll, I'll just close with giving you these. One is giving God thanks for our possessions. When you see the stuff that you have and give thanks to God for it, it tells the true story of what that stuff is. That that stuff is not the security. That that stuff is not the approval but that that stuff is a gift from the one who is security and is approval. That is the true story with our stuff. So one is the, the discipline of giving thanks, regularly giving thanks for all the stuff that is in our life. 
And a twin discipline that goes with gratitude that I want to leave you with is generosity too. Giving generously of our possessions. You see this time and time again in the history of God's people that when they get a vision of who their God is, one of the things that they do is they start giving their stuff away. At the end of Acts 2, the people have this amazing vision of God's salvation in Christ, and the Holy Spirit fills them. And one of the things they organically do is start to give it away. In other words, they start to, to have in their financial life a cross, a, a sense of sacrifice in their financial life. I think that's a great litmus test for all of us in our financial life as to if it is our treasure or if we see it as a gift from the treasure. Is there a cross? Is there a sense of sacrifice to our financial life? And if there isn't, entering into this discipline of giving stuff away regularly, it can teach us also the true story of this stuff. It can teach us the true story of how God has made us to relate to stuff and to each other and to him. That he is our provider. And he gives us stuff and one another to enjoy, (laughs) to have fun with, to care for each other with, to reflect his own generosity, his own fatherly love to us with. Friends, treasuring the stuff of the world, it makes us anxious and it makes us greedy. Treasuring Christ makes us grateful and it makes us generous. And that's because he is the only treasure to whom when we give our lives, he actually comes back at us with life. He's the only treasure we could possibly look toward who sacrifices himself for our good. He is the only good master to serve, the only true security, and the only true sense of ourselves that we can find. So may we, with all of our stuff, turn to him and find in him our life and our hope. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.